Welcome to Building Safe Workplaces, casual talk about serious matters. I'm your host, Tommy Nitt with Hask. This pandemic has affected every aspect of our lives, professional, personal, and even social. The toll this takes on our mental health can manifest itself in many different ways. Listen to our June 17th webinar focusing on mental health and employee resilience. And as always, stay safe. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, we thank you again for joining us on this webinar series brought to you by the Houston Area Safety Council and the University of Texas School of Public Health. Uh, today's topic is a really, really interesting and pertinent topic, and that is going to be on mental health and employee resilience, specifically on returning these employees back to work during this pandemic and also how do, you, how do you handle these employees once they are back to work? What do you need to look out for? What are the pitfalls? What are some of your, uh, your legal obligations that you may have to, have to deal with when returning these employees safely back to work and hopefully maintaining their safety and their health while they are at work? I think that's everybody's, that's everybody's goal. So again, we welcome you uh, to this. Uh, I think we're on what, either five or six now of, of our webinar series and they have been greatly well attended and we appreciate all of your uh, attendance today. Throughout this webinar, we're gonna give a short presentation up front on some, some current trends of this pandemic, but the majority of the webinar is geared towards question and answers uh, by you, the attendee. So everybody is, is on mute and uh, you can't verbally ask a question. So what we ask you to do is type in that question to the question box that you should see on your, on your, uh, your app that you're using. Feel free to ask as many questions as you can because that's what keeps this lively and going. Uh, otherwise, uh, we have to make up our own questions and we, we much rather you ask the questions that are pertinent to what you're having to deal with during this time. Again, brought to you today by the Houston Area Safety Council and the University of Texas School of Public Health. Uh, two mission statements by these two entities, building safe workplaces and changing the culture of health. And uh, what is more honorable than that, right? When we're trying to get these employees back to work, getting them uh, safely back into the job site, but also maintaining their, their health and their safety. Uh, without that, we're not going to have any employees, right, that are that are safe and able to come to work. So we thank these two entities for, for producing and bringing this webinar series to us. We want to thank the Houston Area Safety Council Platinum Sponsors. These are our, our, our top sponsors that help contribute to endeavors like this. Without their support, um, we wouldn't be able to roll out some of these initiatives. So we thank all of our, our Platinum Sponsors for their continued support. So a brief agenda today, um, if you've been on these before with us, you kind of know the flow and what happens if you're new to this webinar series. We do a, a very short presentation up front uh, by, our, by our PhDs at the University of Texas. They're gonna give you the current trends of what's going on uh, with, with this uh, COVID-19 virus. We're also gonna talk about ways that you can uh, make sure that you are reducing the risk of this virus in your workplace because we know that's extremely important right now and then at the end we're going to talk about the resources and the references that you can turn to on your own that are out there that you can reference and and get more educational data to protect your workplace and then of course we're going to open up to that that q a session at the end so 
Here is our list of, uh, of, of routine panelists, I should say, and our guest panelists. And I think we've got a powerhouse of, of guest panelists on here today. We're very fortunate to have C.B. Burns, who is our uh, first uh, attorney that we've had on this webinar series. So I anticipate a lot of, uh, um, of uh, questions related to the legal aspects of, uh, you know, how to... How do I make sure my employees are able to return to work safely? What are some of my legal pitfalls? Um, uh, and then we have a, a whole group of uh, PhDs and, and uh, scientists that are going to help us navigate the, the mental health questions that we all have related to this virus. So Dr. Del Close is, um, is our first speaker today, and he is going to introduce, I believe, everybody up front or maybe along the way as ever he deems fit. So I'm going to turn it over now to George Delclose to give us a current update on this virus. Okay, thank you, Tommy. Uh, before I do, though, I would like to introduce our speakers. We have, uh, we're very uh, lucky to have four guest panelists in addition to the usual crowd of five that we have here. Um, uh, our first uh, guest panelist is Clara Burns, or C.B. Burns as she uh, goes by. Uh, CB is a partner in the uh, Kemp Smith Law Firm in their Labor and Employment Law Department, and she's a member of the firm's uh, management committee as well. She's board certified in Labor and Employment Law by the Texas Board of Legal Specializations and is also licensed in New, in New Mexico. In addition, she's the editor of the Family and Medical League, uh, Leave Act chapter of the Texas Association of Business uh, Texas Employment Law Handbook and author of the Texas Human Resources Manual, which is published by the American Chamber of, of Commerce Resources. So we welcome her here. Um, Monica Guidry is, hang on, let me open it up here. Uh, she's executive director at our university, UT Health here in Houston, the Office of Employee Assistance Programs. And um, as executive director of our EAP, she's responsible for our internal EAP work life and wellness program and for the operations of EAP uh, services for external organizations, including Baylor College of Medicine, Rice University, Texas State University, and several UT sister organizations across the state. Uh, she and I have worked uh, together for many, many years, and it, it, it is really a, a pleasure to work with her and a very unique asset that we have access to. Dr. Frank or Francisco Perez is a clinical occupational psychologist who's also an adjunct professor of occupational health psychology in our center, the Southwest Center for Occupational Environmental Health at the University of Texas School of Public Health in Houston. And he and I have been working and collaborating together for over 30 years. When he was actively practicing clinical psychologist, uh, psychology, he specialized in occupational psychology, and uh, which is a, a rare specialization area within psychology. And more recently, uh, he has been collaborating with the university on delivering uh, courses to our graduate students in occupational health psychology. And finally, we have Dr. David Jimeno, who is the director of the Southwest uh, Center for Occupational Environmental Health. He's also a professor at UT Health, but uh, School of Public Health, but at our San Antonio campus. Uh, originally trained as a clinical psychologist, uh, David is uh, best known now for social and occupational epidemiology. He is a whiz with uh, epidemiological study designs and statistical analysis, but really brings um, 
the, what he brings to this group of uh, panelists is uh, his expertise in what we call the social determinants of health, which are very relevant to the topic that we are addressing today. So wanted to welcome all of them. And uh, let's see, Tommy, I'm going to go to my first slide, please. So every week I try to update folks on uh, what the situation in Texas is using the most recent data. These data are from yesterday. And some of the graphs are developed by uh, colleagues, uh, specifically Dr. Jose Miguel Yamal in our Department of Biostatistics. Many of you have prob uh, probably listened to the governor or know that he spoke yesterday, giving an update on where we were with the reopening of Texas. And he did uh, say that we were moving forward with that reopening, but at the same time acknowledged that there have been some increases in rates and, um, and sort of put those into perspective. So I'm going to go over some of those figures real quick right now. This is a graph of the daily number of new COVID positive cases as of yesterday in the state of Texas. And you'll see that this graph over here on the left, it begins in March. These were our daily number of cases and they began uh, increasing as the uh, pandemic hit Texas. Uh, around uh, the uh, third week of March, the shelter in place uh, recommendation was made across the state, and you'll see that cases continue to rise, but at about two weeks, which is the average incubation, uh, not the average, the maximum incubation period for COVID, things seemed like they were leveling off. And then on May 1st, we began the reopening process, a very careful reopening. This was These were the days of for example, only opening uh, restaurants to 25% capacity, et cetera. And, um, you know, it, it looked like it was the, the curves were beginning to flatten. And then came phase two of the reopening, which also coincided with the Memorial Day weekend. And since then, the rates have been going up. We implemented phase three in early June, and um, that doesn't seem to have affected the slope yet, but we're just nearing the two-week mark now uh, a phase three reopening. So that's in the background. Next slide for Texas. Um, one of the things that the governor's office keeps track on is what we call the positivity rate. This is the total number of tests that are positive over the total number of tests that have been conducted. And so y'all have probably been hearing that we have access to more and more testing uh, citizens have access to more and more testing across the state. That's true. And so one of the things we try to keep in mind is how many of those tests are positive. And we express that as a percent. And in general, as long as the numbers are below about five to six percent, uh, we're doing okay. But once they start to rise, we get into areas of increasing concern. Right now, we are at above five uh, percent. We're somewhere in the six to seven uh, percent range. So that's something that we're going to need to keep an eye on. And certainly if we go into, um, actually, I don't know why this is blue. It should be orange. <laughs> the orange rate, which is above 10%, then we should become uh, more concerned. And finally, if it gets above 15%, then, then that, that really is serious. Um, this is one of the indicators that the governor's office follows. And so, um, you know, when he uh, issued his reopening order, he said, that uh, the reopening phases were going to be guided by science and by the data. So um, right now we're at levels that are manageable, but we are creeping up in some, some of the parameters. So we got to keep an eye on that because it might be necessary at some point to hit the pause button on the reopening process, 
or if things really, really get bad, maybe even take a step backward. Now, some states around the country have already hit the pause button given their particular circumstances, but this is a situation in Texas right now. Next slide, please. Um, this is a new slide I'm including uh, today uh, because one of the other parameters that the governor's office keeps an eye on is the, the, the ability of hospitals to manage this increasing number of cases. And so what you see, um, what you see on the top line is these are all Texas uh, beds, right? So we have a lot of available hospital beds, but a hospital bed is not a hospital bed is not a hospital bed. One of the things that, uh, one of the indicators that we most closely keep an eye on is the number of ICU beds that are available uh, to meet with, uh, to meet this increased demand. And you'll see that's the blue line down here. And you'll see that Obviously, we have much fewer ICU beds than we do total beds, but around 2,000 something is the is the norm. And we've been going down. Um, uh, we were initially going down to their reopening, meaning more ICU beds were available. But now this line is starting to creep up, indicating that ICU beds may be starting to um, to fall behind. There, we're, we still have a surge capacity, as we'll see in a minute, but then the, there are fewer and fewer ICU beds. So we need something we need to keep an eye on. Ventilators, which were a big topic uh, in the news, uh, we're doing okay on. We have many, uh, many ventilators across the state. Now, this, these are just state numbers. That doesn't mean that there aren't marked differences in the availability of beds, ICU beds, and ventilators in specific localities around uh, Texas. You might have a good uh, picture uh, looking across the state, but there might be certain municipalities or, or counties where they are struggling. Next uh, slide. And that simply uh, is illustrated here in this uh, map, which I show every week. This is from the Johns Hopkins website. And what it illustrates, simply to show you that in the state of Texas, all these different color shades of, uh, and, and colors indicate different rates of disease in different parts of the state. So uh, even though we were just looking at state averages, we have to do that but remember at the same time that there's a lot of variability across the state. So we have high incidence areas, uh, even in small counties. So for example, around the Amarillo area, a lot of that was due to uh, uh, cases in a uh, uh, meatpacking plant and uh, others have high numbers because they have high numbers, for example, of prisoners with uh, that are infected or maybe of nursing homes. So we need to uh, um, think in terms of the state, but we also need to very importantly take into account what our own situation is in our own location, because that is useful in deciding what to do for your particular circumstance. Next slide. And as an example, here is the greater Houston area. This is not just Houston, but all the surrounding counties, including Galveston. And you'll see that the shape of this curve is similar to the state, but with some important differences. We also started off low and then sheltered in place uh, in the greater Houston area at about uh, the uh, third week of March. And cases at, at two weeks, which is when we would expect to see the effect of this shelter in place, seem to level off and even start decreasing. And then the reopening began and the first uh, phase of the reopening seems like it didn't make much of a dent, which is okay, but toward, uh, but but uh, as soon as we hit the second phase of the reopening thing, which again is the one that coincided with Memorial Day weekend, things began to increase and they have continued to increase ever since. And now we're in phase three and nearing the two week mark uh, since the uh, phase three uh, began and the rates are going up. Next slide. 
So one of the things that we do in the Texas Medical Center, because these are a lot of numbers, what we've developed here in Houston is a set of early warning signals that uh, are used to help us discuss and decide whether uh, mitigation uh, uh, actions uh, in addition to what we're doing uh, are needed. And so uh, without belaboring it, um, you know, up until about two days ago, one of the things that we monitor is this daily seven-day trend of number of cases in, in the uh, Houston metropolitan area. And up until two days ago, this had been going up for a, a continued uh, for, for at least 12 days in a row. In the last couple of days in the Houston area, they've gone down a little bit. And so now we have zero days of positive average growth. But this is a day-by-day -day, um, indicator that we look at. And you'll see that it's green. Green is good. However, we have some areas of yellow and now red, and it mainly relates to the capacity of hospitals to have enough ICU beds to handle influxes of COVID patients. And so right now in the Texas Medical Center area, about 76% of the ICU beds are in use. The majority of them are not occupied by COVID patients, but we need to reserve that surge capacity in case there is a big uptick uh, in, in COVID cases requiring ICU ca uh, care. And so the current level that we're at, at 76%, uh, we also use that number to project how many days worth of ICU beds do we have um, if, if the increase continues along the same path. And right now, that is our first red area. So right now, given the rate of increase in number of cases, requiring hospitalization and ICU care, coupled with the decrease in availability of ICU beds, even though we still have some, we think that if we continue at the same rate, ICU capacity might be exceeded in about two weeks. So that's definitely something to keep an, an eye on. The good news is for our healthcare workers, our frontline doctors and nurses who are taking care of these patients, we have now have plenty of personal protective equipment for them to be able to take care of their patients while protecting themselves. Next slide. So now I wanted to move into just in my the, this last part. I wanted to make all of you aware of a um, a free app that is available uh, to anyone, any citizen, any employer, any worker that uh, was originally developed by Harvard University and our colleagues here at the University of Texas uh, School of Public Health have also are also participating in this project. The idea of this app is to monitor symptoms that each person might have or might keep track of every day on themselves. And then these data are later analyzed totally confidentially. They're, they're, the data is, is what we call de-identify. That means it's not linked to any individual person or their name or anything like that, but it can be analyzed by, for example, zip codes or counties. And if we see an uptick of people who are reporting symptoms, that could be an early indicator that there's a problem developing in that county or in that zip code. This does not have to do with testing. It's simply symptoms of COVID. And we are going to make these slides available to you after the presentation. If anybody is interested in downloading the app, you have the, uh, the, web, the, the links right there. Next slide. Uh, this can also be useful not only to individual citizens, because for example, families can use this app daily to record their symptoms for all family members, even when they are well, but it also um, could be useful to businesses in the areas because they can use this information to 
basically adapt whatever mitigation strategies they are using now to their local circumstances. So for example, if they've implemented a series of measures in their in their offices and um, uh, following CDC guidelines, but all of a sudden there's a significant increase in um, in cases in their locality or in their zip code area, that might stir them to add additional measures to uh, help prevent the spread within their workplace. So for more information, you can contact our colleagues, Dr. Srila Sharma or Dr. Bijal Bala. Uh, these are their emails. And as I said, these uh, slides will be made available to you um, after the presentation. Thanks, and I'll pass it on now to Janelle, I believe. Thanks, George. Hi, everybody. My name is Janelle Rios, and I'm a faculty associate at the UT School of Public Health. Um, and today I'm going to share with everybody very briefly uh, a well-known and often used public health tool that serves as the foundation for controlling hazards in the workplace. Now, I've adapted this tool a little bit um, for uh, use anywhere. Um, and this tool is called the hierarchy of controls. And the hierarchy refers to the effectiveness of each of these control types. So at the very top, and this is typically and traditionally referred, graphically seen as an inverted pyramid. Um, and at the top of this inverted pyramid are the most effective controls. Um, and I do wanna make everyone aware that a lot of these controls are not visible to people. Um, that they're not the ones that are really cool and people are seeing like masks out in public. So elimination is a very effective method at controlling um, the COVID hazard. Um, and I encourage everybody to practice primary prevention techniques to keep the virus from entering your home or workplace. Um, and how do you do that? These are things that we can control. We're empowered to do this. We can limit visiting locations where non-household members gather. So when you go to the grocery store, you go to the hardware store, uh, don't do that very often. Um, get what you need and, and leave and come back home. Wash your hands frequently. Uh, that's a, another way of keeping this particular hazard away from your home. Um, and to the very right of the pyramid, I have a little graphic that shows a person who's telecommuting and actually not going into the office, but working from home. Next slide, please. Next, we have engineering controls. So, and I think that'll pop up. Here we go. Um, and some of these engineering controls you can't see either. Uh, for example, HVAC technologies, like increasing the number of air exchanges. And my colleague, Bob, who just put his... Uh, his photo up there, um, he'll explain a little bit more about air exchanges um, versus in ventilation versus air circulation. Um, there's also these inline UV technologies because uh, the virus is actually pretty susceptible to um, UV light. Um, and these can go in line inside of the uh, air conditioning system. Uh, also cleaning and disinfecting. Um, work surfaces, your home, frequently touched uh, areas. I know with my alarm system, I come home, I have to press the buttons on my alarm system. Uh, in my hands, I still feel like they're contaminated as soon as I walk in the door. So my alarm pad is something that I disinfect pretty frequently. And here I'd like to draw your attention to uh, the EPA registered disinfectants list N, N as a neighbor. Um, so in, on this slide, I have a hyperlink to these EPA registered disinfectants, and it's a very nice tool because you can search 
by a, a variety of things, but one of those things is contact time. So if you have a very minimal amount of time that you can spend on disinfecting, you can spray something, you can find this uh, the perfect disinfectant for you. Um, two minutes or one minute contact time and then it works and then you can wipe it off. Uh, next slide, please. Administrative controls. These, this typically would refer to how work is performed uh, and changing behaviors. So here, one of the things that we can control ourselves is training and learning how to screen yourself for COVID symptoms, taking training on resilience, um, because there is training. And I would point to the World Cares Organization out of New York, and they came up after the 9-11 tragedies. Um, and they have wonderful training on resilience. Um, uh, practice social distancing when you're out and about in the world. Um, and here I have a graphic that kind of tries to show that um, social distancing. Uh, next slide, please. There, the, one of the least effective methods in this hierarchy of controls is personal protective equipment. Um, and here I have an example of an N95 respirator. Um, when all else fails and we can't do all of these other controls or we're very limited with the other controls, we protect the worker or the person. And we do that with, with equipment that is specifically designed to protect the wearer. Um, so if, if you have a job uh, where you need to wear uh, personal protective equipment, understand how to wear it, how to use it, how to disinfect it. If you're using a reusable uh, respirator, this one happens to be disposable. Um, next slide, please. But what we normally see out in the world, and this, has a, this gets a lot of media attention, is community protective equipment. And these are things uh, like facial coverings, um, cloth ones that are reusable, they're, they're washable or disposable masks. Now these things are designed to protect others from you. So less protecting the wearer, but to protect others from you. So it is polite to wear these kinds of masks when you're out in public. Um, so learn how to use them, reuse them, care for them, uh, how to wash them and dry them. Um, and these are things that we can do to protect ourselves. Um, and I know this slide is really busy, um, that's why I wanted to present it in pieces, but there's a lot of information on this slide and I hope it's very useful. Um, thank you very much. Thanks, Janelle. And, and there was another question about will these slides be made available? Absolutely, they will be. We're gonna, we will email this out to all of our attendees as well as there, there will be a full recording of this live webinar and that will be uh, posted on our on the Houston Area Safety Council's website, but we'll also make sure everybody has access to that as well. So thank you again, Janelle. All right, Bob, I think this is you. Is it? No, it's Christy. It's me. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm the Dean of the El Paso campus of UT Health Houston School of Public Health. And this really just springboards off of what Dr. Rios just explained. When we think about the risks associated with exposure to the novel coronavirus and then the stress that can come with that, we do know that there's a myriad of things, as Dr. Rios explained, that we can do to empower ourselves to mitigate those risks. And so the list here on this slide is nothing new. These strategies, um, we've heard them over and over again since the start of the pandemic. I think what is new as we're so many weeks and months now into the pandemic is that there are data that supports these safeguards. There's data that shows they are effective. 
at minimizing exposure and thereby mitigating health risks. Um, and I just to, to emphasize one of Dr. Rios's last points, I mean, definitely the, the wearing of the face coverings, that would be more of a community effort because the wear of the face covering is not, is not protected. It's really protecting those around you. But it's hand washing, disinfecting services, and definitely maintaining social distancing practices. Um, decisions made at the community level and at the individual level can be protective of public health. So there are ways um, as, as individuals that we can make decisions to um, combat the, the pandemic and I think maybe you know, release some of the stress levels. We do have some control thereby how to minimize exposure. Thank you. All right, Bob, take it away. Okay, I'm up. So, hey, I'm Safety Bob. Um, so, I got four things I'd like to share, but I, I really welcome all of the comments and, and questions that will flow in. Uh, but with regard to the topic of this webinar, um, I really want to underscore this first point that unfortunately in the uh, public media, um, they have dropped the term novel from referring to the coronavirus. And the reason I think that's so important is that there are some things, the term novel means new, and there are some things we know about the virus, but there's some things that are not known. And so with regard to mental health, I think it's really important in my opinion, and I welcome your questions and comments on this, to prepare people to say, here's what we know and here's the things we can do that we know are effective, but understand there might be some changes coming, right? So that I think, and, and I defer to my colleague, Monica Gidry and others on this, but um, I think that's kind of an important point to prepare people for there could be some changes. Um, the, the My public health background tells people to, that you might wanna stay tuned to what's called the R naught value. That's the R sub zero. That's how many additional cases would one expect when a confirmed case is uh, uh, identified. I believe the current number, it changes, but I believe it's 2.2. Uh, to give you a feel for that, I believe influenza, if, if maybe George, I don't know if you can chime in on this, but like seasonal flu is maybe 1.2 or so. Oh, 1.5, 1.6. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Whereas on the other end of the spectrum, uh, something like measles is like 15, 16. Is, is, that, is that correct? Or, or anyhow, okay. Um, so. Yes. You know, to give you a feel for that. So that number one, just understand it's novel, it's new, there's still things to be learned about this virus. Number two, um, screening, we get a lot of questions about temperature scanning and these sorts of things, but really screening begins at home. And, and the term, the reason I put it in quotes is that screening is that notion of getting people to uh, accept the responsibility of, if I'm not feeling well, don't come to work or don't come to my facility, and then to go through the process. And I suspect there'll be many questions about this. Uh, I think we've already covered the issue of masking. I think uh, Janelle and uh, 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 Christy have covered this, this notion of masking. Uh, the, the one purpose of masking is to 
be a barrier to transmission because an important point here, I'm not sure we've covered it on this particular thing, is that you could be a transmitter of disease while you are not exhibiting symptoms. So the idea there is if people mask while in public, then you won't inadvertently um, affect others. And then on the other end is a protection for the wearers, such as N95s, these masks that have been described. The last point um, it has to do with cleaning and disinfection. And um, uh, it, there's been a variety of, of uh, studies that have come out um, looking at the viability of this virus on different surfaces. And this, I throw out a number of 72 hours. Um, so my commentary would be, you want to darn sure make that whatever cleaning that is going on or regular disinfection, make sure that these are EPA registered disinfectants as uh, Janelle Rios described. Um, but most importantly, write this one down and underline it, make sure that they uh, adhere to the contact time because these, these uh, products can be virtually ineffective if they're just going in, spraying a door handle and then just wiping it right off that that contact time is is really really important so um uh i'll, I'll stop there and, and i welcome any questions there's a lot more stuff we could talk about but i'll I, let's you know let, let's get to the meat of the the issue here absolutely thank you bob and again feel free to to type in your questions on the question box you should see on your screen there we've got a couple that have come in and i'm going to wait until we finish uh rolling through some of these initial slides and then we'll start going into our question and answers all right some references oh, yeah oh i think that that might have been my slides i'm not sure but there there, there are some references then let let dave handle it <laughs> <laughs> yeah those right. are box slides <laughs> all right go ahead dave sure this is uh dave dufred i'm over here in san antonio at our in our campus here in san antonio and and uh, my job was just to put together some uh, simple resources uh, for everyone uh, regarding uh, today's topic. Uh, I think we would all agree that we are living in unprecedented times uh, and stressful times. And we are, that means we're working in unprecedented environments, unprecedented times with a multitude of new uh, dynamics, workplace dynamics, workplace stressors. Um, and there's a lot of uncertainty that's out there. Um, you or your workers may be experiencing fatigue, uh, stress, uh, not only with what's going on in the office, but also with dynamics at home. Uh, for those of you on the call that you know have kids, we've been having to put up with our kids at home because schools have been closed. Now we have to put up with them for the summer months and we don't even know what's gonna be going on in the fall. And so we also have our extended family. Uh, we have um, uh, the unknowns with uh, elderly parents and everything. And so all of these dynamics to, together uh, can lead to uh, stress, maybe even some anxiety. And so uh, what I've done here, I, I looked all over the internet and there, there's many different resources that are out there uh, to address stress, fatigue, anxiety related to 
this pandemic situation. And so uh, what I put on this slide was what the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, has put together. And to my amazement, they have a number of different resources and documents to address these very issues. And so I just wanted to uh, bring to your attention these documents, these resources that you as an employer or you personally uh, might benefit from uh, regarding uh, living in close quarters. You might have um, you know, multiple family members under the same roof, um, how to manage fatigue in the workplace, stress, how to deal with job stress uh, uh, regarding uh, as well as resilience, um, stress and coping, reducing stigma. Um, a lot, you know, I, I was trying to uh, uh, appreciate, you know, if a worker may uh, be, might test positive, you know, there might be stigma associated with that, um, with that situation. How to uh, keep your children healthy during the environment. And then the last one there is how to stay active. And we all know that uh, staying active and exercise is very important, and not only to keep ourselves healthy, but to control anxieties and stress. And so those are just a few of the resources that uh, we put on this slide and those are gonna be made available for uh, your later viewing and access. All right, perfect, thank you very much. Well, that brings us to the end of our formal presentation. So what I'm gonna do is ask that all of our guest panelists activate their webcam uh, so that everybody can see us. And gonna start into our Q&A session. So again, uh, I see the questions are starting to come in, so that's that's wonderful. Uh, so let me just, I'll, I'll throw out a, an initial question, maybe, maybe as an icebreaker. Um, you know, I'm sure that history can tell us a lot when it comes to employees and the general public's mental health during crises. Right, we've we've been through a Great Depression. We went through a financial crisis in 2008. The world has seen SARS and MERS and uh, tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes. What does history tell us about the mental state of 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 people during these crises? Crises when they don't have a job, they have no income. They're they they can't leave their house, or maybe their house was destroyed. What, what do we know? What, 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 are we, what are we concerned about trend-wise when it comes to people's mental health uh, during, during times like this? And I'll throw that out to whoever wants to, to jump in and unmute themselves and, and chat. So, hi, this is Monica. Um, so you threw out a lot of uh, question in, in that, um, a lot of items in that question. And, and what we know is that there are some people who would take off every stressor that you just identified and yet show unbelievable resilience um, when people are saying, how did you ever survive? And then there are people who may um, have great opportunities available to them who aren't quite so resilient. Um, what we know is that it's not one dimension, that we have to look at um, all of the dimensions of well-being for an individual. But as an employer, I think the number one thing we have to look at is what is our own um, level of awareness of what we are dealing with 
and how we then move forward to helping our other employees. Because if we come in with our own biases, with our own perspective, with our own um, lack of resilience or, or stress and anxiety, um, it's very difficult for us to hear what our own employees are going through. So you hear all the time in airlines, you put your mask on first, then you're able to kind of help the others. Uh, what's critical is that not one answer will address every um, employee's resilience or stress tolerance level. So awareness, I think, is the very first thing that we have to be aware of. Um, and not just assume people will find their own resources. Great, Monica, thank you very much. Did anybody else have a comment, Frank? Sure, I, I uh, um, you know, when we face a, a situation like the one that we're facing now, uh, in which we have uncertainties, uh, we have uh, to adapt to significant changes that we don't like. Um, what happens first is typically our mind goes usually to the darkest thoughts that we typically have. And we all have them. And I think one of the most important things that we can do to manage a situation like this is like Donna Karen, <laughs> the uh, fashion designer. Recently, I was looking for a best definition that I could find uh, or the best suggestion to manage chaos. And she has the best suggestion, which is finding the calm in the chaos. And that's a very difficult thing to do. And it's the, the chaos of your thinking process as it relates to what is happening to you. And um, I think one of the best ways to do that is to develop some specific behaviors that enhance your well-being. Uh, one of them is to focus on mindfulness. Mindfulness involves the process of focusing on relaxing and focus on the present and now and get oriented towards problem solving. Uh, the second one is identify those dark thoughts that you're having and identify a way to improve them. There is a, a system that has developed by a psychologist by the name of Ottinger. Uh, she actually has a great book that I encourage all of you to get, which is called Rethinking Positive Thinking, that basically focuses on a system that she has developed that is called WOOP, W-O-O-P. And that system involves uh, wish, what do you wish, objective, what do you want to accomplish, um, uh, obstacles that are on your way to reach those objectives and goals, and then a plan. And uh, people who effectively use this system to deal with their negative thoughts can actually see the calm in the middle of the chaos. Uh, it's a process of developing ways of rethinking your situation in a more healthy and positive way. So um, connecting with others is certainly important, even though it's difficult sometimes when we're at distance with each other, but um, connecting with a coworker, uh, connecting with a colleague. Um, I recently had a very fascinating experience of a, uh, a high school classmate, and I graduated in 1965, that's a long time ago, uh, who called me from the Dominican Republic, and where he lives now. 
and I haven't talked to him in ages. And you wouldn't believe how that brought me my day. And I think all of us can do something that is free, which is engage in acts of kindness. And in addition to and kindness is probably one of the best ways of building resilience. And the other one is being grateful. I have embarked in the process when I walk uh, at Herman Park or close to Herman Park, I don't dare even get into Herman Park these days, um, is to thank somebody who is grateful and moves out of the way or keeps distance from me. You know, these are things that we can all do. We need to remember that the only way we, we can prevent um, catching this virus is through our own behavior. And we need to set an example. And by doing so, we enhance our well-being. Excellent, Dr. Perez. Thank you very much for that insight. Anybody else have any initial comments? All right, so I'm gonna, I'll jump to our first question that was that was typed in here. And it, uh, it has to do with employment. So it, it may be a CB question or whoever can jump in, but if an employee says they do not feel safe at work, can, are they entitled to unemployment without an official layoff? Okay, that's a that's a probably a good legal question, uh, and it probably doesn't have a straightforward answer. Um, but uh, ge just general unsafeness, I you know, without pointing to some specific um, cause, uh, is not a reason not to be able to work, and it generally will not be. Uh, seen by the Texas Workforce Commission, which determines uh, employment or unemployment eligibility uh, as a reason. Now, there are reasons that the TWC allows, which if you can't go to work because you uh, live with somebody who's in a, in a high-risk group and you're fear fearful for that reason that you might expose them, those are reasons that the TWC would allow. But if it's simply personal um, and that you are fearful, uh, then that's generally something the TWC probably is not going to allow. Excellent. Thank you very much for that for that legal answer. I know we've had uh, that question come up a few times, and nobody on our panel has been an attorney, so we appreciate any insight you can give us on some of those. And, and add, just to add, if you don't mind, uh, you yeah. can actually go to the uh, Texas Workforce Commission's website, and they have some guidance uh, that they have offered on uh, when they will uh, or when they consider it to be good cause not to go to work as it relates to COVID and COVID concerns. And so that's one of them, if you're taking care of a high-risk individual and you don't want to expose, and there's some others, but that's a good way to uh, kind of get to some quick answers for some of those types of questions. Okay, great, thank you for that uh, resource. George, I think this question is, is directly related to this graph that you showed. And this is the daily new number of, of COVID cases throughout the state. And the question was, given the fact that the number of tests have increased over time, would it be fair to say that this graph in conjunction with the number of tests would be more of a flattened curve? Uh, that, that's a great question and that's a, a very relevant question because uh, one of the issues that was discussed in the governor's conference yesterday was that some of this increase might be due to testing. So I, you know, with the limited time that we had, uh, I didn't, I wasn't able to show y'all another slide that was also done by our biostats department in which they compare the trend in testing 
to the trend in increase in in, in uh, daily number of new COVID cases. And even though it's true that tests are going up, they're going up in terms of being more available. They're going up at a slower rate than the rate of increase that we are seeing. And so um, that's one indication that not all of the increase um, is, is explained simply by more tests. The other indicator is the increased rate of hospitalization. So think about it. If you're offering more tests, if it's easier to test people than it was before, then the types of cases that you would pick up are more likely to be people who don't have symptoms, because we know that you can be positive and yet be have no symptoms or be asymptomatic, or people who have very mild symptoms. Um, what you would not expect would be at the same time to see an increase in the number of very sick people sick enough to require hospitalization, because those folks have been pretty much tested all along because they were sick enough to go seek medical attention and be hospitalized. So we are seeing an increase in daily number of new cases. If we had not seen an increase in hospitalizations, then yeah, probably a lot of that would be explained by more testing, but that's not the case. Increased testing has explained some of it, but not all of it. Thank you very much, George, for that. Um, another question that came in is that uh, this person was is a psychotherapist and wanted to know what's the comfort level for for a therapist to interact with a with a with a patient without a mask on, assuming they can keep six feet of distance. Would you recommend that? Would you not recommend that? Uh, I'll open that up for for opinion. I, I, let me dive in here. So, um, so face coverings and face masks are designed to supplement social distancing. The key thing is still maintaining a distance of six feet or more. If you add a mask on top of that, that's simply a, an added layer of protection. Or if you cannot maintain six feet or more, then definitely you need to have your face covered. Um, if you can keep a, 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 if it's important to not wear a mask for purposes of the success of the counseling session, then um, things that you need to take into account. Yes, you could remove your mask, but above all, preserve, maybe even extend the distance beyond six feet. But also look at the conditions of your office. If you are in a very, very small office where air is not ventilating, you know, uh, well, where the, the air exchanges are are poor. Those are some considerations that might promote or might decrease the level of safety of you not wearing a mask. Uh, it's not just as simple as have the mask or not have the mask. Gotcha. Let me jump in there too, uh, Tommy. Um, perhaps an engineering control might be helpful. Something like plexiglass between the, the therapist and the patient. Uh, that would be helpful as well. Um, but I, I agree very much with George um, that uh, masks are to supplement the social distancing because there are some aerosols that are generated by by speech um, as well as droplets and, and those have different distances that they travel so it's it's best to maintain at least a six foot distance but more is preferable um, but in that particular case I would recommend uh, looking at a desktop plexiglass um, uh, to separate, to isolate each person from the other. Yeah, I, I want to stack on that. Um, 
most of my colleagues who are clinical psychologists and are practicing psychotherapy have a plexiglass system uh, between them and their patient uh, to protect themselves and also to protect the patient. Because remember, they're reliable. If something happens to the patient and catch it, uh, and, and and maybe Claire or uh, yeah Clara can can uh, help me with that. Uh, but um, my malpractice insurance sent me a notification saying that we're responsible for anything that happens to the person that we're treating, and uh, uh, we have to keep that in mind. And I think the plexiglass is a, is a good way of of doing that. Clara, do you have any answers to my question? Yeah. I, I, I'm not a personal injury lawyer or a medical malpractice lawyer, but I think it's always good to mitigate risks as much as you can, uh, because in the event that you are sued, you can say we've you've taken, you know, all reasonable precautions to uh, avoid uh, spreading the disease. So it, it, it you can translate that to the workplace. It's just, uh, you know, I work in a law office, for example, and we've installed plexiglass at our secretarial stations. Um, because they're in more of a cubicle than an office, but by having that plexiglass, when people leave something for them or walk by them, then that plexiglass is protecting them. So it's, you know, it's, it's the same theory as you want to mitigate against those risks. Um, here's a question related to to testing. So maybe this is a George question, but yeah, the, the question is on, you know, reliability and, and uh, uh, accuracy of the different types of tests that we have now, the PCR nasal swab versus the new rapid testing. Can you talk a little bit about kind of the gold standard that we have right now and, and the other options? Sure. So there are, first of all, there are different types of tests that test different aspects of a COVID infection. The test that is the most reliable to see if you have an infection now, an active infection now, is what's called the PCR test. This is the one that we see on TV, people poking a swab pretty much through your nose, way to the back of your throat. Some people feel <laughs> that it's actually penetrating into their brain, it's not, but it, it, it's not comfortable. Uh, and that is the most reliable one uh, out there. But it indicates active infection. We've also heard about antibody tests. Antibody tests um, are, are especially useful at saying if you have had the infection in the recent past. Um, but for all of these tests, and some tests are faster than others, some of them are qualitative and some of them are quantitative. Qualitative are tests that just simply say yes, no, detected, not detected. Quantitative tests actually give you some measurements. But for every test out there, uh, you should, you should look at the information behind it regarding its accuracy. The first thing you look for is, is it FDA approved? Very important. Um, the, the, F, the normal FDA process for approving tests to verify that they are accurate is a long process. And because of the rapid nature of the pandemic, early on the FDA had to issue a, a shorter uh, route to approval called an emergency use authorization. Uh, and that basically put in the hands of the manufacturers of these tests um, uh, the uh, proof that, that it put the onus on them to prove that their tests were accurate. Um, and uh, what was found out subsequently is that a lot of these tests really fall short in terms of accuracy. In fact, 
as recently as this morning. Some of the tests that were previously authorized under the FDA's emergency use authorization are now being, uh, FDA is dis uh, or you know removing the authorization because of poor performance. This is especially an important uh, issue with rapid tests, the ones that give you results in minutes, because there have been high rates of false negatives and false positives. This is especially important too for employers who are considering using testing as part of their return to work criteria, which is personally something I do not recommend. I don't think the science is there or the level of knowledge on accuracy and usefulness of the test and what the and an understanding of what a positive test means when you go I'm talking mainly about antibody and antigen tests right now, not the not the swab test. We we do know a lot about that. Uh, I, I think the science is not there to warrant that employers use those tests to make return to work decisions because there there are going to be problems problems with false positives meaning that the test designates somebody as having had an infection in the past I'm referring to the antibody test when in fact they did not therefore making them maybe more susceptible to certain exposures when everybody thinks that they're immune and conversely false negative tests when somebody who really has an infection is not picked up by the test so a lot of caution there are a ton of tests out there do your homework look up and see if it's FDA approved. Look at what the accuracy data uh, is for that. Hey, hey George, it's Bob. Um, while you're on that topic and, and, and that theme, uh, what about temperature screening? Because I, I get a ton of calls about this. So, um, you know, I, I've talked to some, well, actually, we even had a webinar here with one of our guest panelists from Shell Oil, Dr. Fayez Bojani, uh, mentioned the experience at Shell where they had had about 150,000 temperature checks, and they only had a handful of people who who were, were considered to have a fever uh, and, and returned home. Um, you know, I, I think... And, and some of the recommendations that you see out there, some of the guidelines include thermal screening uh, with, a, with a thermometer, an individual thermometer. Uh, I think the jury's still out on that. I think from a standpoint of optics and giving some reassurance to people coming into a building or to an office or coming back to work, it's useful. But in terms of the actual ability to detect um, people with active infection, uh, it's uncertain. I can tell you from our own internal data at some of the hospitals here in the medical center, um, temperature is not the most common finding in a person with an active COVID infection. That's a very important point. It's actually cough. It's followed by fever, but fever is uh, less than 50%. Now, why is that important? Early on, you might remember when testing was scarce, and I'm talking about now February, um, we did not test people unless they had a fever. So they could be coughing, they could have shortness of breath, but if they did not have a fever, they were not testing. And we now know that we probably missed a whole bunch of cases by having that criteria. We're requiring temperature because we now know that the many, many people do not have a temperature despite being actively infected. Excellent, thank you very much. And I, you know, I think that 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 just illustrates Bob's initial comment about how this is a you know a novel virus. We we don't know we still don't know a lot about this virus. One of our our IH colleagues from from UT you know typed in and, and put a comment that 
you know, we really don't even know the, the minimum if, uh, infective dose of this virus, right? How many coughing particles do I need to inhale to catch the virus? You know, we, we, we still don't know those, those details. Uh, so I think we're, we're all learning as, as we go. Um, uh, also, maybe, Bob, you want to talk a little bit about um, uh, system, you know, HVAC system filtration rates and, and what that minimum we think might need to be? Uh, sure. We, we received uh, a, a lot of calls about the uh, recommended, the, the buzz term that you want to write down is ACH, air changes per hour, um, within uh, what would be the suitable number. And as you might imagine, within uh, various settings, they try to reduce the number of air changes per hour for energy conservation purposes. Um, but uh, we've just completed a study here looking at this exact issue with regard to um, outpatient clinics. Uh, newly minted Dr. Kristen King, um, and um, the for 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 just to give you a rule of thumb number, and I'll get back to the air changes in a second here. But um, the for clinics that would be doing uh, airborne inducing activities. So in other words, you know, you're going to stick something down their throat or coughing or that kind of stuff. That the uh, recommended number would be four to six air changes per hour. But the really important uh, point of this is it's. Uh, outside air coming in, not just recirculating air within. And in fact, I think George will weigh in on this, that just the notion of just circulating the air within the facility without that outside influence could actually be more detrimental because it could resuspend some of these uh, aerosols that Janelle was describing. I'll pause there and say, George, you're, you're on board with that one? Right. Yeah. The, the, the analogy I always use is ventilation is not the same thing as recirculation. What's the difference? Ventilation means you are replacing the air in a room with fresh air from the outside. So when we're talking about air exchanges that Bob was mentioning, four to six per hour, that means that every hour, the air in a room is, is exchanged completely with air, fresh air, about four to six times. Recirculation, uh, imagine that you take a room and you hermetically seal it off. You put duct tape everywhere, for example, and you close off the ducts and the, the cracks under the door and all that stuff. And you put a fan in the middle of the room and you turn it on. That air is moving, but it's not being replaced with fresh air. And, mm -hmm. and in reality, so it's just recirculating. So if you have something like a viral particle where if you cough normally, it falls down to the ground within three feet, usually six feet or less, certainly. Uh, now you've got that fan going and that virus that's headed all, all the way down to the ground now gets recirculated, resuspended. So the risk actually increases. So mm -hmm. ventilation and recirculation are not the same thing. And if I may, I, I, I can't point to data uh, it, it's not yet published, but but I would, for those who are attending this event, um, particularly for people who are in leased space, I would encourage you uh, to work with the, the, the people who own the space to find out this exact issue that George is describing, because um, we, 
the anecdotal evidence we're having here is that perhaps the air exchanges per hour inclusive of outside air because you have to condition that right if it's winter time you got to heat it if it's summertime you got to cool it um so there's a cost factor there but i i i would ask those pointed questions great thank you very much uh I'll ask this question now, and I'll, I'll direct it to, to David Jimeno first, just because I know we chatted about it earlier off off camera. What you know? Do we have any surveys of employees right now and their fears? What what are what are employees most fearful about when returning to work or staying in their working environment? Thanks, Tommy. <clears throat> so so I want to link this to to all these questions because I think that what we think in terms of institutions and you know businesses what we may think we know about the concerns of our workforce may not be accurate right so we need to be ready to ask and we need to be ready then to act upon you know the answers we receive and that's certain when when also pointing to what bob was saying early on this is a novel virus and therefore is a novel situation and information flows and changes and that's important in terms of messaging, because what we were saying at the beginning, maybe just it's about the fever, like George was saying, and now we know it's more than that. And the flowing of the information may also create a perceived sense in, in you know, in a, in a large proportion of our workforce that it's unclear what's the message and we don't know what's going on and we are not being told everything and so, so on and so forth. So there is a need really to be consistent and and the world as we know it sort of it changes, but but also how that translates that into people returning to the workplaces or not returning to work because most people have been working, but returning to the workplace. In terms of, of surveys, you know, of large institutions like ours, uh, the, the biggest need is is really two two big things. One is about flexibility in terms of you know being able to keep doing some of the job tasks from social distance typically that will mean remote working from home and that certainly will vary because we have a different type of jobs clinicians and so on but but even then linking to the questions on the therapies you can do also telehealth you can do virtual face-to-face -face video communication you know like we're doing and you can do therapy and so there are many different ways of dealing with that. So there is a perceived need for flexibility from the institution to still provide uh, the ability for workers to, as much as possible, continue doing some of the work they do kind of electronically, you know. And that links to the well-being part of, of this seminar, really, in terms of how that links to my, my need of needed for more social participation, being with friends, being with colleagues, you know, and and so on. So there is a balance there that we need to be able to measure in any workforce in terms of what does it mean uh, working from home? Is it working from home five days a week or if it's work, you know, how we are going to regulate the workforce going back and maybe in terms, maybe in teams, et cetera, et cetera. The biggest fear that we we are receiving from from our workforce is really the need to know if somebody gets sick. People have a a, a fear, a, a biggest concern in terms of what if somebody gets gets sick, right? And and that has other ramifications in terms of confidentiality and so on. 
but it's important in in buildings you know talking about exchanges right with our exchange may not be maybe unknown people cannot open a window we cannot ventilate like we can ventilate at home and so on so so all those things are necessary at the end of the day is about creating a culture of trust where the message from the workplace that the employee receive is is trustable and that they don't perceive that we're just you know i want to say cheating them to go back to work just because there is a need for us for them to go back to work if they can perform uh at a higher rate at their workplace at home at the work environment at home uh, that is something that we should have into consideration you know anecdotally just to finish this in terms of comments that we receive we, we receive a lot of people feeling less stress of now they are at home yes some of them may have kids yes some of them they need to cope with the separation between work and work life but you know so a lot of our workforce may be driving two or two hours and a half every day they don't need to do that anymore that reduces the level of stress they have more time to do other things and so there is a combination that not everything coming out of this situation is negative there is a lot of positive and i think the challenge for let's say the new the new business environment would be how you integrate the benefits of this situation and realizing that you may not need to you know have everybody come in uh, at the same time and and that is still you as is, as an institution you can perform uh, well and and that is a challenge that i think that all every business every business is different is different a restaurant there is different a hospital there is different an academic institution but but that will be the challenge how you integrate the positive that came out of this and and not only thinking about the negative tommy can i um ask a question of CB that ties on to what David was just saying, I know is a concern of many employers. So David mentioned um, that em employees are worried about being exposed to other folks in their workplace and they want to know actually. So employers sometimes are facing a slippery slope, right? How much can they or should they tell other employees if there's a confirmed case versus the requirement really to preserve confidentiality how do they what what advice do you give them from a legal standpoint sure yeah because you have there's hipaa protections of course with respect to health information and identity of uh, individuals um so and in most workplaces uh you know we uh, the, the communications we craft we don't identify who has tested positive um but it's often not hard to figure out uh, in workplaces when somebody's not there for 10 to 14 days or uh, is you know suddenly gone but uh, but nonetheless we do want to respect people's privacy or the identity is privacy so the, the communications we work on crafting is number one just to figure out who has been within close proximity of that individual uh, and you know we we follow what the CDC has been telling us about this but okay so identify who may have had contact uh, within you know the social distancing space uh, who may have had maskless contact at least put them on notice that they need to self-monitor uh, isolate as much or quarantine as much as they can um, you know pending and, and if they identify any uh, symptoms themselves then they need to start really quarantining at home uh, so it's really about again 
identifying those who have had proximity, letting them know that they, they need to self-monitor, make sure that they're aware that they've had possible exposure. And then if they do start experiencing symptoms to, to start the, the uh, protocol for quarantining and contacting their doctor, finding out should they be tested, uh, how to go about it, uh, that sort of stuff. That's a great, a great question, and, and we certainly get that one a lot, and we had that one typed in as well. So, so kind of going further with that, are, what is the employer's legal obligation to disclose in general that we had a positive case in the office, you know, be on the, be on the lookout for, for your own symptoms? Do they have to tell the, the other employees that there was a positive case? You know, you, you, you want to because there's various laws that might come into play. There's OSHA obligations. There may be OSHA, uh, Occupational Safety and Health uh, Administration, um, particularly if you think it may spread in the workplace. So you have an obli obligation to investigate and determine if, if, the, um, if the spread has occurred in the workplace or was did the person who had COVID that's been diagnosed, did that person possibly... Um, get it in the workplace. And then you have reporting obligations under OSHA. So, uh, and then you have workers' comp issues. If it, if it is spread in the workplace and that there may be workers' compensation coverage for that. But getting back to your question, should you tell employees if they've been exposed? I think absolutely. I think you have, uh, even if you don't have a legal obligation, you have a moral obligation. But I think you have a legal, legal obligation because you want to make sure that they are now aware that they have, there's potential exposure uh, and uh, you know, just to be careful, be monitoring, be aware uh, to protect themselves and to protect others. Uh, CB, this is Bob. Uh, just to, to um, uh, attach to what you're saying, uh, it seems to me that um, the other thing we need to do from a mental health perspective is to make sure um, once an employer does a notification that there was a confirmed case within their work environment, um, don't be surprised if you get a call or an email from the health department, if that kind of makes sense. Because I'm, I'm a little confused with your response there that I'm not sure the companies, and I'll, I'll defer to my colleagues on this, I'm not sure the companies would do what I would refer to as contact investigation, right? But but from a mental health perspective, to prep people, so you know, conversely, you could you could have a situation where you have a confirmed case, and now uh, that person is notified their supervisor, I'm 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 not feeling well, I'm you know I'm, I'm going to stay at home, but then for the so there's a notification obligation that you've described, um, but as part of that, in my opinion as part of that notification obligation, some of you might be getting a call from the health department. And would, would you agree with that or? Yeah, I, I think where health departments are in fact doing contact tracing, then yes, yeah, uh, certainly be expected. Um, but you know, from the employer, from the legal perspective of it, and the CDC again, it gives very good guidance um, on what to do uh, been exposed or if you believe you've been exposed and it talk and it tells employers and places of business uh, that you should uh, you know you should follow these steps you should notify people who have had contact but you know to what extent you can determine 
you know, maybe this person hasn't not been in the office for 10 days. So your last exposure would have been 10 days. So, you know, you, you, you didn't know, okay, I need to kind of be aware for the next four to five days, just based on the common notion or the, or the prevailing wisdom, I guess, that there's a 14 day incubation period. Um, but so giving people information like that, I think is only helpful to let them know, you know, what, what they should be doing and how they should be reacting. I, I, uh, I want to go back to a point that, that I, I will finish with this line of questioning or. Sure, go uh, ahead. Yeah, I, I want to go to a point that David made. And if I heard him correctly, um, I understood that uh, uh, in the survey that, that was obtained, basically you found that the uh, employee felt more comfortable at home or less stress at home. Was that correct? Yes, yeah, some of them, yes. Yes. Um, and, and to me, what it seems to be is basically the level of control they have about managing, uh, uh, you know, how they deal with this pandemic. And one of the things that we can learn uh, as employer is uh, basically evaluate how we can give the worker when they return to work more control over their environment you know how they can sort of develop uh, uh, strategies or systems that are going to make them feel like they're more in control of what happens to them and what happens to others i mean as we know and you know david you're the expert on this uh if you have more control you're going to be more satisfied with your work environment. Uh, so what are your thoughts, David, on that? Well, the, uh, as always, there is no straight answer. And there's going to be a mix, right? There's going to be a, a group of people that they want to go back to work, you know, yesterday. And, and they are totally <laughs> mad about, you know, not being able to go, go back to the workplace. They're all working to just go back to the workplace. And then there is other people that may feel better, but it, it may also relate to what are the needs in the institution and figure it out a, a good balance of the work, non-work life, right? In, in the real sense of people, yes, you may have control, but it's about, at the end of the day, it's about performance and productivity. Can you be productive enough, you know, not coming, in our case, to the office? That is not true to all the workplaces, certainly, which, you know, particularly service, you know, industry, but in, in the office environment. Can you be still productive of not going and sometimes more productive? You know, a, a good chunk of our employees are reporting that they are working longer, you know, because sadly, as I said, they may have two or three hours, you know, of no commuting time and they may be using that time to work, but as well to balance their work with the non-work activities, right? And which provide relief. Um, so, so it's really about knowing what are your needs as an institution, you know, what, what is that you need from your workers, and, and knowing that we all know just being at the office doesn't mean you're being productive. <laughs> the yes. same way, you know, the same fear that the employer may have about, I don't see them, therefore I don't know what they're doing, and therefore they may not be working, uh, is the same thing when you're at the office. doesn't change anything. It's a perceived sense from the employer in general terms that just being at the office makes you productive, where it may be the other way around. Again, there's typically this, 
just making easy that two group of people the ones that are really truly more productive at the office because they have a work environment which at home they don't you know that you know people are working on 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 their kitchen right areas and they are not happy about that versus the other ones that they they can create an, an environment at home that make them productive enough so that at the end of the day is about knowing what your workforce needs and and you as an institution with this is a natural experiment right have we detected that as an institution that our performance indicators are worse than before and in things that you know not not seeing you know clinical patients which you know there has been a, an issue there but in general office jobs you know are we seeing that people are producing less and and being being less happy and so on and so forth i mean there is there is a stress people are stressed about the possibility of the job you know being forlorn or losing it or whatever there, there is not that people are happy in, you know in their in their at their homes but there is a still a way of managing that if you know what are your expectations and what are their expectations and then you need to find a way of matching them and and to me that that's where it it really matters because in terms of the balance of your need as an institution and uh, that's what we should be doing and then it's about so communication the sorry it's about the, this communication and, and and providing a trustable consistent messaging because one of the things is scary i think bob was mentioning nobody tells you anything and the next thing you get is a is a call from the texas department of health telling you that by the way you are a possible contact but nobody told me anything at my workplace therefore my workplace is lying therefore i don't trust my office to go back and that's the circle that we get into unless as, as a as a business we're able to communicate as much as possible and i think clara was right there people know if you get sick if you get an accident if, you know some there is a death in your family people know this because we work in close environments and we work many hours together so yes HIPAA and so on we shouldn't be closed but most people know what happened to other people in the workplace anyway and and if the business doesn't address that directly and you get it from an indirect source that creates a, i think a, a, a communication distrust and and then it's difficult to recover every time there is something happening excellent thank you very much for everybody's feedback we've got we're down to our last 10 minutes so I'm gonna kind of fire off some of these last remaining questions and hopefully we can get through all of them. So if we can do some, some quick answers, if they're quick answers to give, uh, that would be great. The website that where you can go and download the, the presentation and, and view the full recorded webinar will be the Houston Area Safety Council's website. That's hasc.com. We're also gonna email that out to, uh, to everybody. So that takes care of that one. Uh, Frank, a question was, what was the name of that book that you recommended? Yeah, it's called Rethinking Positive Thinking. Oops, Rethinking Positive Thinking. And the author is right there. Whoops, if I can do it. <laughs> well, the author is Gabriel Ottinger, O-E-T-T-I-N-G-E-M. -E Great book um, in how to deal with uh, your negative thoughts. Thank you very much. What are some what are some resources and maybe this is a, a Monica can start this one off. What are some resources for employers to help assist their employees with uh, their mental stress of of getting back to work? Where, where where are some websites they can go to? Are there some 
some you know some quick talking point kits they can look up to to kind of help navigate uh, this this stressful time for their employees. So, you know, we're probably um, a broad range of different employers on this call. Um, some employers will have an employee assistance program or a wellness program, even occupational health within their organization. And those are always good resources um, for their employees to access. It's also confidential resources. So um, instead of having to ask for um, financial resources or those kinds of things from your direct supervisor, this gives you a chance to go um, to a confidential resource within your organization. I am very impressed with the CDC resource list that is there um, on the website. WellCOA also has a number of resources for returning to the workplace. One of the things that we've learned um, that I've learned over the years, um, both at UT Health and many other organizations, is telling employees once what resources are available is, um, is as effective as telling them what their insurance uh, services are. So, uh, so what's important at this point is recognizing that just because I learned something by reading it doesn't mean that everyone does that. So look at resources that can be posted in break rooms, sent out in emails, put on the front pages of your web pages, but understand who accesses what web pages. So you really have to dig deep into where do employees go to access their information. And um, their insurance carriers, um, we have Blue Cross Blue Shield. There's a wealth of information out there for mental health resources that are out there. Um, the most critical piece is understanding your employee population um, and where they go for most of their information. And a lot of times it's WebMD or someplace else. So as Bob mentioned and David mentioned, um, have a very robust um, communication system within your organization. Great. There's also a great resource uh, at uh, University of California, Berkeley. Uh, they have a program there and they have a, a website um, that is the signs of greater good. And it is wonderful. And it has great resources for employers and employees and the work environment. So uh, you might want to go there, it's science-based and they have a very um, appropriate practical applications. Excellent, thank you very much. Um, question about facial coverings and employers requiring their employees to wear them. If there's no local or state mandate that they have to wear a mask, can an employer legally require their employees to wear a, a facial covering while at work? Yes, short answer is yes, they can. It's a private employer can impose its own rules. I mean, that would be the same with respect to COVID testing. A private employer can require uh, COVID testing uh, under EEOC guidance and the same with face masks. The things that you have to consider are uh, you may have employees that have medical conditions that limit or restrict their ability to wear a face mask and uh, you may have a duty to reasonably accommodate under the ADA, so you need to have dialogue with those individuals uh, that are expressing medical reasons uh, that they cannot, but 
the answer to the question is yes, you can require it. Okay, can we take that a step yeah. further, CB? And what can the employer require their customers or patrons to do the same? Yes, Employ uh, a store, um, a restaurant, you know, subject to eating, but uh, yes, private businesses, uh, businesses in general can require uh, patrons and customers uh, to wear face masks. I'm they can prohibit. They can prohibit them from entering if they're not wearing one. Good to know, Christy. CB, oh yeah, sorry. CB as a follow up to that. Um, this might be obvious. I'm not sure. Then can can a business owner do the opposite and require patrons to take off their face covering? I've been seeing some. <laughs> there's um, yeah, there's fact, there's a lawsuit. Yeah, there's a lawsuit over that where a uh, in a restaurant in Texas where an employee wanted to wear it and the restaurant was saying no, we don't want our we don't want our staff wearing them. Uh, she filed a lawsuit and uh, um, had, the initial hearing was successful. The court was ruling with her. So, uh, so I think that answers your question. It's it's not a clear area of law, but it looks like courts will weigh in favor of uh, the employee wanting to wear one or the patron wanting to wear one. Great, thank you. There was a, a question about that uh, the, the the list in, so I put the slide back up. That is the, the and correct me if I'm wrong, Bob, but that that is where you go to find the contact time for that particular solution. Uh, uh, yes. Well, back up a little bit, and uh, Janelle, I think, still on. But um, um, first of all, it, it's important uh, that the what you want to do is verify that the product that's being used to do disinfecting and cleaning within your organization is actually an EPA registered disinfectant and list N uh, will, you can go there and identify the product. And then uh, Janelle, help me because you, you hunted up this link. Does that include contact time on this link that you've installed? Yes, so that tool is really helpful because you can search all of these disinfectants by product name, yes. contact time, you know, a bunch of different variables that you can search it by. But, but if, if I may, and Janelle, help me before you leave that slide, sorry. Um, and many times um, um, organizations will get, or perhaps you have a contract housekeeping group or whatever, but um, so they may get this material in a concentrated form and then, then mix it with water or whatever it is, you know, to dilute it. And it's really important to make sure that they're mixing it to the right uh, proportion, right? So let's say it's one gallon to 10 gallons or what, whatever it might be, because some of these firms might be cutting the corner and not exactly <laughs> mixing it the way it's supposed to be. So that's one, one potential problem. And then the second potential problem, which I just observed firsthand, was this issue of contact time. That the notion of someone coming in and they're, let's say they spray down a table, that's, that's wonderful that they're doing that, but the product that's supposed to be or a doorknob or something, but the, the product, the contact time is supposed to be two minutes. And so they're spraying and then immediately wiping off. And so you wonder, is that even, is that effective? So these are just kind of diagnostic questions. Janelle, you're, are, are we in line with that or? Uh-oh. Janelle, 
won't speak to me anymore. But anyhow, <laughs> yes, I, I said yes in terms of her. Yes, Bob, oh, okay. you're right. <laughs> okay, perfect. <laughs> you know, and there was there was a follow up question. I think we answered it, but I'm going to ask it again. Can an employer require an employee to get tested prior to coming to work? Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's the short answer. Uh, the EEOC has specifically relaxed its prior guidances on pre-employment testing, and to for the for this particular uh, condition for this particular virus, and an employer can uh, do that. Okay, excellent. I know we have we have reached our one o'clock mark, so if if anybody needs to jump off, uh, uh, feel free to jump off. I'm, I'm going to try to shoot through the, the, I think we have about four questions remaining. So I'd rather just knock them out while we're recording the webinar. But if any of our panelists need to jump off, I, I totally understand. Um, a question was asked about the turnaround time for the PCR nasal swab results to come back. You know, anecdotally, uh, we, we, we test people a lot. We use the commercial labs, the big ones, and we've seen it from two days to 10 days. I think right now they're averaging about four days, four to five days. And I, I think it's just dependent on what lab you're using. If you're going into a hospital and they have their own lab set up, you may get it back quicker. But George, feel free to jump in on that if you yeah, need to. So the commercial labs, and, and, and by commercial labs, we're talking about the very big operations nationally. You may have heard of LabCorp and Quest. They are averaging now, they've come down a little bit around four point, not much days. Uh, here at UT Health, we do our own tests in our own labs, and we have them often back within a few hours, and certainly by the next morning. Yeah, exactly. Uh, where in Houston would somebody recommend to go get the FDA-approved serum antibody tests? Um, so again, you would have to go to the FDA and look at the list, but the commercial labs, again, they are using FDA-approved tests. So. Uh, any place like LabCorp that uses LabCorp or Quest or similar size large national labs are the most likely to have uh, FDA-approved antibody tests. I know that we are ordering them through our clinic through, through LabCorp happens to be the one that we use, but it could be others. So they could, so they could, they can go to their primary care doctor if he uses Quest or LabCorp, which I'm sure he or she does. They can go just get that sample drawn there at their personal doctor. Most likely. Correct. And we do see a lot of patients in our clinic that are asking for specifically that. Okay. Is there a place on the HVAC system itself that notes the air uh, air change number? Uh, that's me. Uh, no. <laughs> uh, typically what you have to do is there's a uh, device that the you put up around the uh, diffuser and you measure that, uh, but there's not an indicator uh, that I'm aware of in, in, in these systems, but I, I would, uh, so my, my, I guess my question would back to the person would be, who is it that runs your facility and ask them what the ACH is, the air changes per hour are in your um, facility and uh, the percent outside air, because some of these things can recirculate. But I would pause here for a second, and I forgot to mention this and I apologize, uh, we get a lot of calls about the issue of UV uh, ultraviolet lighting uh, systems. Uh, this this particular virus appears to be quite susceptible to uh, exposure to UV light. And so there's been a lot of marketing for uh, lighting systems. Imagine a series of uh, UV lights that you would put within your ventilation system uh 
and then this would help reduce the, the circulation of any virus. Uh, but, and I, I tell people that's fine, but a, a couple of points here, the, the amount of outside air is probably more important than the UV light. And number two, and I defer to my colleagues, please jump in on this one. These UV lighting systems look good, but they have to be maintained. So it's kind of like getting a puppy, right? <laughs> you got to walk it and worm it and feed it, and all the stuff that goes along with getting a puppy. So you put these UV systems in, but you're, if you're, they get laden with dust or the lights go out or all these other things, then in effect, you, you've wasted your time. So I, I, I defer. David, would you agree with my assessment on UV, on UV lighting in the dark? Yes, I, I agree. Okay, it gives me the thumbs up. <laughs> All right. I mean, if you have any other question, I, I would like to add a couple of things. You know, sure, one, sure. one in terms of resources, we also have uh, a lot of different resources listed in on our website. That is the Sawa Center for Occupational Environmental Health. Uh, I think you have it here somewhere, but it's not as Sawa uh, as SWCOEH.org. And, and then the other thing in terms of mental health, and we'll be in a little bit too close this, but my fear is that we don't keep the communication lines open once this passes, because this will pass like everything else, that we are still providing enough attention to the workforce for them to be able to continue to report any issues they have. You know, not necessarily just the fear of COVID, but in general because mental health is typically underreported and diagnosed everything right everything is under but but this may have provided the opportunity for people to feel a little bit more free in terms of expressing their opinion towards this you know what what is happening and so on and the thing is important to hear the word first and even even in the event of the the manage the, the health of management you know it, it is a, it is how managing all this information coming from large populations but it still is important i think to figure it a way which may be different in different workplaces about how we do to hear our workforce uh, for any issues and you know what can we do about it so can i jump in on that too david because i think that um having resources available to management to talk, help them talk through these um, their perceptions, their bias, their management decisions that they have to make um, really is what organizations will evolve to hopefully um, implement during this time. Um, the judgments around being, I'm anxious, should I be able to operate today? Or um, I I'm worried about my family member. Um, families play such a critical role in the resilience of our own employees, and yet we um, think of them in isolation when they walk into our door. So um, I'd love this dialogue to continue um, to talk about how we can evolve as organizations. Excellent, thank you very much. Um, for those that are at, at risk, you know, uh, higher risk, over 65, with some health factors maybe, what what are some some guidance measures for them returning back to work? Should they stay at home longer? Should there be some accommodations made at work? Uh, any any guidance for those uh, higher risk individuals? So CDC has a um, 
uh, some guidelines for high-risk workers, and it includes people over 65. Um, you know, it's going to depend on a lot of factors, Tommy. It depends on the nature of the business, whether you can do it from home. It depends on you yourself. Are you simply in that age group but otherwise healthy, or do you have underlying medical conditions that uh, progressively increase your risk? Um, and uh, so all of that has to be factored in. It, it's really got to be individualized a lot. The starting point is recognizing that there are some groups in society that are more vulnerable to uh, the effects of a COVID infection. Not so much more vulnerable to the infection itself, but to the consequences, the severity of it. Um, and so that's got to be discussed, I think, employer by employer. Absolutely. Okay. I'm going to show this slide up here. Uh, there was a question about uh, resources for mental health, and um, I think this was a, a, an excellent slide to, to show. Um, I'm going to end it there. I think we've got a few more questions, but I think we could, as long as we keep going, more questions will come in. So I, what I'm going to do is stop it here, and I will email our panelists those remaining questions, and they will answer them in, 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 back to me, and we're going to disseminate that information out to uh, to everybody. So uh, again, I want to thank all of our, our guest panelists on today. I think we could have probably gone another hour and, and still kept the, the momentum going and the, the questions uh, rolling. But uh, we know that, you know, mental health is a, is, a, is a big deal right now. And it's something that oftentimes, unfortunately, gets gets overlooked in our employees. So uh, we, thank, we thank everybody for their expertise today. Uh, we're gonna, again, give everybody this information that was shared, as well as the resources and, and all of our PowerPoint slides. So thank you, everybody. I think we have another webinar coming on uh, next week as well. Same time, same place, we hope you join us.